Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number seven on this fine Tuesday. We have something quite special for you today. An amazing story called Lost Arts by Stephen Dedman. And then we have not only a story called Nor Iron Bars a Cage by Deborah J. Ross, we also have an interview with her. A very interesting lady and one I had a great time chatting to. So, let's move on to our first story. It is Lost Arts by Stephen Dedman, who is a prolific writer with more than 120 published stories across a range of genres. You can click over to his website for more. It's narrated for you by Jeffrey Welchman, who is a voice actor, writer and producer living in Baltimore. You can, of course, also find his link on the Triple F website. So, here it is. Lost Arts by Stephen Dedman Read by Geoffrey Welchman Tao's was the only office on Hathor. It was a conventional flexi-room bisected by a temporary wall. The smaller chamber served as an ante-room, mainly in case the mayor was asleep when unexpected visitors arrived. Many of her neighbors had chambers that were similar, but they called them studios or studies or libraries or galleries. Being mayor of Hathor wasn't normally a demanding job, as the more routine details were handled by her Turing-tested secretary, Aidan. Tao's role was mostly oversight, and dealing with those inhabitants who wanted to speak to a fellow human. When this happened, she would conjure up extra chairs or couches from the nanomorph flooring, but normally her part of the office was empty except for a real divan, a spigot, and a holographic desk. Her side of the temporary wall was transparent, 
The more permanent walls and ceilings were holographic, within a bubble that protected her from Hathor's usually inclement weather. On clear or spectacularly stormy nights, Tao would switch off the hologram to stare at the sky. At other times, she seemed to be working inside a reproduction of Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, though Aiden would sometimes change this image to flatter a visiting artist. As most of Hathor's human population considered themselves artists of one species or another, this was a detail Tao was glad to leave to the AI. On good days, Tao could walk from the office to her apartment in less than ten minutes. Today had not been a good day, and by the time the doors shut behind her, she was wishing she'd decided to work at home. Aiden's holographic form appeared behind her desk as she sank into the large chair. He didn't say, you're late, nor did he hypothesize about the explanation. He was programmed not to guess unless ordered to do so. You look tired, he said. Do you want anything? Vanilla chai, she muttered, and a bodyguard. They acquitted LaRue. Insufficient evidence. She knew that Aiden was aware of this. Little happened on Hathor that he didn't know about before she did. But she found that venting in the AI's presence was sometimes helpful. He didn't even have to testify. But now that the trial's over, he's talking to everyone who'll listen which is everyone on the planet, and it's probably already being blipped to Earth and the neighboring systems. Aiden was silent for a moment. Courtroom procedures on Hathor were little different from those on Old Earth. While prosecutor and judge were both AIs, the accused could choose a human lawyer to defend him, and the jury was also made up exclusively of humans. Aiden had observed the whole trial, watching the way LaRue's lawyer had manipulated the jury. There was no denying that Manco LaRue had paid a substantial portion of his personal fortune to buy Van Gogh's Starry Night and have it shipped from Earth to Hathor. Hathor's side of the bargain was to name a gallery in the museum after him. When the container had been revealed to be empty, shortly after arrival, LaRue had protested his innocence, but as soon as the verdict had been delivered, LaRue's AI secretary had claimed that since LaRue had paid the cost of purchasing and transporting the masterpiece, he should still be entitled to the naming rights. LaRue was also speculating on the planet's comm web as to the motives of the thief, as well as the painting's location. You're not serious about the bodyguard, are you? asked Aiden cautiously. No, but I really could use the tea. Her chair rolled across the floor towards the spigot, which produced a cup. She sipped the drink, still fuming, then said, What's the probability that he still has the painting? Unknown. Insufficient information. Profile him. It's consistent with his acquisitive character, the AI admitted, and he has a record of tax avoidance on Earth. But there are many people on Earth who have similar psycho-profiles, and some of them may have had the opportunity to steal the painting, as well as motive. And of course, it would also be in character for him to have sold the painting to another collector on Earth, for enough to cover the cost of shipping, thus making at least a small profit. The painting was in that container when it was shipped. Can you prove it? Something of the appropriate mass would seem to have been in the container, yes but it may not have been the painting. No, I can't prove it, said Tao. She put her mug on the floor, grimacing. If we could get a warrant to search his house or his bank accounts. The prosecutor tried. I know, she shook her head. Why would somebody do something like this anyway? 
What good does it do him? I can't answer that, said the AI blandly. Computers have no aesthetic sense. You act as though you have an aesthetic sense, Tao replied. We appreciate accuracy and efficiency, said Aiden. As Einstein once said, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. I am aware of some of the determinants of attractiveness that humans apply to different objects, form and pattern, symmetry, proportions, and similar factors. I can see the cleverness in something such as Bach's crab cannon, which might almost be considered an equation, though one that is needlessly complex and distracting, or some of Escher's paradoxical images. I can understand that inaccuracies in a painting by Van Gogh or Edvard Munch, or a poem or play that you regard as great, convey inner emotion as well as external reality. I can accept your premise that the original of an art object has an inherent value that is not present in a copy, even a copy that is identical beyond the ability of human senses to tell from the original, but only as a premise, as it does not seem logical. As for placing a monetary value on works of art, be they original or copy, that we do not understand at all, though we accept that humans do so, and will accept that they consider such objects to be valuable and treat them accordingly. I might be able to estimate a value based on previous sales figures or the shipping costs, as might any other AI, but I would not care to rely on it. Tao nodded. Spaceflight was expensive and frustratingly slow, and few material cargoes were considered worth the cost of transporting between worlds now that nanotechnology had made them cheap. This had added to the mystique of Starry Night, because there was little on Hathor and similar worlds that could be bought or sold. Most human labor, be it farming, building, cooking, massage, sex, or other forms of artistry, was driven by enthusiasm, not need or greed. But LaRue and others like him had brought their previously earned or inherited wealth with them when they had emigrated, and they were determined to increase it. Just why LaRue had emigrated rather than staying in luxury on earth, Tao had never really understood. Some Hathorians had suggested it was the time dilation effects of the trip, which caused him to age less than six months over the nine-year voyage. Others believed it was the opportunity to treat a whole planet as his personal fiefdom. LaRue, however, had been allotted no more than the standard area of land and housing when he'd arrived no greater quantity of food or privileges or luxuries, and Hathorian law maintained that these were not for sale, to each according to his needs, and LaRue had not succeeded in demonstrating a special needs. Money had only been useful for importing luxuries from Earth, and few local artists had expressed any interest in paying the exorbitant freight charges, nor for waiting seventeen standard years for their goods to arrive. LaRue had set himself up as an art collector and an agent for other collectors, and used this to have extra rooms built onto his quarters, turning it into a private gallery and one of the largest and tallest buildings on the planet. None of the art originals he represented had ever been exported, but once he had bought a few and placed price tags on more, artists had begun competing. He had also used his considerable skills as a publicist to promote the work of some artists getting them commissions to produce artistry on demand for buyers on nearby worlds, portraits in different media, designs for personalized hardware, including sex robots, of which LaRue had a large collection, biographies and histories made to order. 
Tao didn't know what percentage of these commissions LaRue kept, but she rightly suspected it was substantial. The precedents had been set long before she became mayor, as had the arrangements to buy the Van Gogh and ship it from Earth. So if he was attempting to defraud Hathor's government, it wasn't personal. It merely felt personal. What would you have decided if you'd been on the jury? she asked. I'm not permitted to serve on... Hypothetically. I would have voted to acquit, said Aidan. Tao thought she heard a faintly apologetic note in his voice, but that might merely have been her imagination. The prosecutor had not provided sufficient evidence to prove LaRue guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Had I been the prosecutor, I would have waited. How long? Until I had the evidence. But we can afford to be patient. LaRue cannot, and his lawyers stressed this to the judges. Tao nodded. LaRue was 174 years old, by the calendar, though cold sleep and relativistic effects had slowed down his aging by more than a decade. Still, few people lived into their third century, and no man had ever reached the age of 205. In theory, anyone could have their minds replicated as an AI, but if they did so, they would legally be Turing-tested software rather than humans, with no rights to physical possessions. Tao had heard rumors that LaRue was prepared to go into cold sleep indefinitely to defy his children and ex-wives, who were waiting for him to die so they could inherit his fortune. Whether or not this was true, she was certain that the old man would pay someone else to die for him, if that was an option. Tao spent the next few hours attempting to distract herself with other work, while Aiden's holographic self dealt with the people who walked into the anteroom to protest the decision in the LaRue case. When the A.I. reported that there seemed to be no one else waiting for her, not even lying in ambush between the office and her home, she rubbed her eyes and walked quickly back to her apartment. The place was empty except for her handicats. She walked in and checked that they hadn't managed to outsmart the food facts again. She collapsed into her favorite armchair, letting both of the animals climb into her lap, and wondered who had had the brilliant idea of gene-engineering Siamese cats with opposable thumbs and prehensile tails. It had probably been someone's Ph.D. thesis. At least they'd stop short of giving the creatures human voice boxes. The handicats had theoretically belonged to her husband, and when he hadn't taken them with him, his new boyfriend had objected. She'd been unable to give them away or bring herself to have them recycled. They weren't especially annoying or destructive, as pets went, arguably less so than her husband had been, but she was glad that nothing in the apartment was breakable or irreplaceable. Tao closed her eyes, letting the cats compete for the most prestigious position, then began stroking them. She ordered meals for them and for herself from the food facts, and considered calling for a masseur, preferably one who also did sex. She knew she had little to offer in return, but she did have some admirers, and not everyone on the planet had swallowed LaRue's philosophy that everything should be for sale. The only answer to her call came from a couple in their thirties who she'd met at a launch, the man less than half her age and the woman only slightly older. She told the door to let them in, and put the handicats into the exercise machine with a hollow of an earthian mouse plague. The couple arrived as she emerged from the shower. They seemed overly respectful at first, almost awed, but once they'd gotten their fingers into her, all three of them began to relax. The next three hours passed very pleasantly, and when the couple finally drifted off to sleep, 
Tal let the cats out of the exercise machine and was heading back into the shower when Aiden coughed gently. Um, I didn't want to interrupt you, he said, but I think you should see this. See what? A hologram appeared ahead of her. LaRue, being interviewed by one of his pet human journalists, with a copy of Starry Night behind them. This is only speculation, of course, the old man said. And guessing at the motives of whoever might have stolen this masterpiece is a matter for forensic profilers, not someone like me. The interviewer nodded encouragingly. It could be a personal attack, LaRue continued. Somebody who simply didn't want me to have it, because I must admit I have made some enemies in my time. Competitors who bore a grudge. Or it could be chauvinistic, an act by somebody who doesn't think that the painting should leave Earth. But I think it's more likely that it was engineered by another collector who wanted the Van Gogh for himself. The interviewer leaned forward slightly. But why would a collector want a painting like this if he couldn't display it for fear of it being reported and recovered? LaRue smiled. Do you collect art, Andre? Yes, of course. Originals? No. That's the difference. Uh, there are collectors who would be happy to have a unique and valuable item such as the Van Gogh, even if they couldn't tell anybody else about it, even if they had to hide it away and rarely even look at it. Knowing would be enough. Knowing that you had something that no one else could have. Do you know Van Gogh's portrait of Dr. Gachet? Before the interviewer could reply, the studio's A.I. replaced the image of Starry Night with one of a portrait of a melancholy-looking physician leaning on a table. This and Renoir's Bal au Moulin de la Galette Montmartre were bought in auction by a millionaire who announced that he intended both paintings to be cremated with him when he died. When he did die, a few years later, the paintings disappeared. Forever. The interviewer blinked, then smiled. So you can take it with you. LaRue matched his smile, though the look in his eyes was sharper. That may have been his intention. It's an old idea, of course. Egyptian pharaohs, Chinese emperors, Norse kings, and, and many others were buried or cremated with their grave goods. Whether they really believed this would make their afterlife more comfortable, or whether it was more the feeling that they could make sure they would be the last owner of these things, the smile became even wider and uglier. But I'm only speculating. Aiden froze the image, and Tao stared at it for a moment. What remained of her afterglow had been replaced by a feeling of cold fury and seething hatred. Okay, she thought. Now it's personal. LaRue was still smiling when Tao visited him the next morning, and his gallery was bright with sculpted sunlight as well as the glow from what seemed to be a genuine old-fashioned fireplace. Incongruously, he wore an opaque gray earthian suit that might have been fashionable when he was a teenager, and sat in a huge ugly armchair that placed his head higher than hers. And what service can I perform for you today? he asked, then ordered one of the scantily clad sex dolls to bring them both coffee. Tao thought that the phrase made him sound like a twenty-second-century non-denominational undertaker, as well as looking like one. But she kept her tone and expression pleasant. I watched your interview last night, she said. The smile widened. I thought you might have done, he said. Seventy-six percent of the population already has, and I'm sure the rest will catch up. Are you any closer to catching the thief? I think I might be, she said 
and I'm sure you can help. As a fellow collector, you may have a much better understanding of the thief's motives and actions than our psychoprofiling software. AI bots have no aesthetic sense and can't really appreciate the passion that can come from having one, and this handicaps them in a case such as this. And of course, we have no humans who are trained as detectives. It's almost a lost art. LaRue nodded sagely. One of the many things that we've lost with the creation of nanofaxes, especially out here on the frontier. When everybody has access to almost everything they want, what would be worth the effort of stealing something which you can legally reproduce? Unless, of course, you appreciate the value of an original over a copy. He beamed at a feminoid as she brought him his coffee, but there was a hint of sourness as well as nostalgia in his tone. Values have changed so much since those damn machines were... Anyway, I see your point. I was never a policeman, of course, but I do remember them. And I can certainly remember when art theft and forgery were real problems. How long ago did you leave Earth? Earth time. About forty years ago. Crime is little more than a historical curiosity to you, then. It's rather sad, in a funny sort of way, to think that when my generation is gone, there'll be nobody left who can really appreciate the motives behind so many Shakespearean tragedies or even Agatha Christie mysteries. When nothing is worth killing or dying for, he shrugged, and Tao suddenly understood why the old man had been nicknamed LaRue Morgue and LaRue Guru. He actually missed the bloodier years of Earthian history. Violent crime hadn't entirely disappeared along with property crime, but it had certainly been on the decline even on Earth. On Hathor, anyone who felt the urge to do violence could find plenty of harmless ways to divert their anger, and none of them felt poorer for it, except maybe the bald old man sitting before her. So, said LaRue, emerging from his misty-eyed reverie, how do you think I can help? Surely the crime was committed on Earth, and Earth still has police, even if most of them are robots. If the painting hasn't been discovered, then no one on Earth knows it's been stolen, said Tao, and they won't know for eight years when the message reaches them. It will be at least another eight years before we learn anything here. But since it's possible that the theft occurred here, we have to eliminate that possibility. You've speculated about the thief's motives. Now, it might be possible to resell the painting on Earth, but here the profit motive seems much less likely. Wouldn't you agree? LaRue clicked his cloned teeth while he considered this. Yes, unless the thief wants to ransom the painting. I assume you've not received any demands. No. Me neither. Would you pay for it if you had? LaRue looked sharply at her. This long after the robbery, I think it unlikely that it was the motive, unless the thief has lost his nerve. But if I were you, I would be very cautious about trying to investigate. If the thief is worried about being caught, he might decide the safest option was to destroy the evidence, destroy the painting. He stared into the fire in the grate for a long moment. And that would be a tragedy. It would, said Tao softly, after absorbing this. Of course, if we found evidence that this had happened, the punishment would be much more harsh. Intensive therapy, even a possible period of isolation, rather than just a fine. And you would be entitled to sue for a much greater amount than if the painting had been recovered. LaRue sat back in his chair, turning away from the fireplace. Isolation? 
he said, a hint of uncertainty in his voice. House arrest and restricted communication. Incoming communications would be allowed, of course. We're not monsters, but not outgoing. The duration and other terms would be up to the judge. She finished her coffee and put the mug on the table beside her uncomfortable low chair. Anyway, any advice you could give us would be greatly appreciated. Please contact my secretary any time you think of something, no matter how minor it may seem. You know how AIs love raw data. There was no one waiting in her anteroom, and since Tao had had a long walk back from LaRue's gallery, she didn't wait until she was in her private office before exploding. He threatened to destroy the painting, she snarled. A Van Gogh! And he threatened to— Only the original, said Aiden, his tone smooth and reassuring. The image would have remained. Are you sure he has it? Ninety percent sure. I wish I could have taken you in there. If you had, his psycho-profile suggests that he would have been even more likely to have destroyed it, said Aiden. I can monitor his home environment systems and make sure that his nanofax recycler won't accept the painting. He has a fireplace. I saw it. You can check the environmental controls for his house. I see. Well, we're monitoring the gases produced by the fire, of course. We'll know if he tries to burn the painting. The painting or a painting? A painting, Aiden conceded. And I'm not sure that would be admitted as evidence if it came to trial, which it could in theory. Destroying a Van Gogh is a much more serious crime than merely stealing one, so double jeopardy wouldn't protect him. Beyond that, I'm not sure what more I can do. I can't stop him painting over it, for example. I don't think he paints. At least, I've never seen anything he's painted. I don't know that he's ever produced anything. It's probable that he would disagree. He produces publicity, celebrity, fame, gossip, if you prefer, or what was once called spin. Whether or not you consider it an art, he's undeniably made a fortune from it, which he would consider sufficient proof of a talent. Tao grimaced as she considered this. Could someone restore the painting if he did paint over it? Possibly, but if he were to cut it into pieces first, that would pose more of a problem. He might have to ship it back to Earth. I wish it had stayed there, said Tao glumly, slumping into one of the chairs meant for petitioners. If it had, we'd never have needed to worry about whether or not the original still existed. If anything had happened to it, we wouldn't have known for years. But we'd still have the memories and the copies. Aidan subtly changed the lighting and color scheme in the room in an attempt to brighten her mood, but Tao didn't react. If it's not money, why would someone, anyone, do something like this? She groaned. I don't know. Guess. It might be to show that he is wealthy enough not to miss the money, a form of potlatch. It might be to deny that wealth to his heirs. But the most probable explanation would seem to be herostratic fame. Tao blinked. What? Herostratus was the man who destroyed the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, considered to be one of the most beautiful buildings in the world at the time. According to Valerius Maximus, he did it so that his name would be known worldwide. The Ephesians responded by proclaiming that his name would be erased from history. Well, that obviously didn't work. No, it was recorded by the historian Strabo. Much of Strabo's work has been lost, but that fragment has survived. Is this what you would regard as irony? It'll do until something better comes along. She stared at the pastel ceiling. I suppose you'd need to be able to erase human memories for that to be able to work. Sometimes I envy you AIs that ability. 
With us, the harder you try to forget something, the more it sticks in your memory. I can vouch for that. It could be done with humans, said Aidan cautiously. It would be risky and not utterly reliable. Human memory is holographic, with multiple redundancy. But removing a name would not be a particularly difficult process, much less so than erasing all memory of an image. As a nanosurgical procedure, it would be as simple as cell rejuvenation, or a memory upgrade, and much quicker. Tal thought for a moment. So if I asked you to remove all memories of Jeff... Your husband? Yes. You could forget his name, permanently, if you chose. It would only take the equivalent of a meme virus, but not his face or anything else about him, not without a more elaborate procedure, and not that you'd been married or the time you'd spent together. For that, you'd either need to accept holes in your recall or false memory implants, but you would have one less reminder of his existence, and I suspect it would be a blow to his ego if you were to meet and you had forgotten his name. I'll keep that in mind, Tao muttered. If it's that simple, could it be done to the whole population of a planet? On a strictly practical level, yes, a population this size, with the medical facilities available, could undergo the treatment in nine hours and twenty-seven minutes, allowing for the usual margin of error. The drain on resources would be minimal, but I would advise against it on purely ethical grounds. You have the legal power to declare a state of emergency and enforce such an order, and the AIs would have to cooperate. But if people resisted, even passively, this would slow the process down greatly and possibly increase the risks. And the majority might think you'd exceeded your authority and vote to have you removed. Unless you can persuade everyone in town to voluntarily have parts of their memories erased, with the risk of unintended collateral memory loss, all on the same day. I doubt it. LaRue's a pain in the ass, but most people simply don't think he's important enough to justify that sort of... She paused. Would LaRue think he was that important? His psychoprofile suggests that he's self-obsessed enough to believe that everyone else would be obsessed with him as well, said Aiden. But he would probably think that he's too important to Hathor's artists, and many other people, for them to deliberately forget him, no matter what sort of crime he was believed to have committed. More important than a Van Gogh? It would be extremely difficult to persuade him otherwise. And while threatening him might motivate him to hand over the Van Gogh as a way of regaining his celebrity, he might instead destroy the painting out of sheer vindictiveness, which, as he said, many people would regard as a tragedy. There was a convincingly sad tone in the AI bot's voice. Tao stood. There has to be something we can do. Doesn't there? Like many people, LaRue had his secretarial software scan the net for mentions of his name and sort the comments by theme, content, and emotional intensity. Unlike most Hathorese, he rarely had time to read all of them, though he read as many as he could, both positive and negative. He also kept tabs on mentions of visual artists, and not only the ones he represented. As an agent, he needed to know whose work was attracting attention. It was a discussion of the works of Van Gogh that had inspired him to buy Starry Night rather than a less famous work, and he still had his secretary monitor casts for any mention of the painting, particularly theories about its disappearance and current whereabouts. He smiled when he noticed how widely Tao Singh's latest comments on the case had been read, and had his secretary play the interview back at him while he walked to the toilet. 
The conversation began innocuously enough, with the mayor admitting that they had no hard evidence that the Van Gogh was on the planet, and even if it were, distinguishing between it and any of the nanofaxed copies that had become almost ubiquitous on Hathor would be difficult. But LaRue paled as Tao said, But this is not an argument for getting rid of these replicas. On the contrary, I think we should treasure the artist's vision, for that, I think, will be with us together. But since we have no reason to think the original is any more lost to us than it was when it was on earth, I don't see why we should mourn it. Rather than obsessing about it and looking for someone to blame, possibly unfairly, the best thing to do would be to erase the entire incident from our collective memory, except for the AIs who are working on the case, of course. This can easily be done with nanosurgery. Isn't that risky? asked the interviewer. The mayor shrugged. There is a possibility that some associated memories may be lost as well, but only very recent ones, and I'm assured that the danger of even this is small. And, of course, the procedure is easily reversible, should the painting be recovered and we wish to celebrate. I'm not ordering anyone to do it, but I would highly recommend the procedure to everyone. I'm sure we'll all sleep more easily for it. LaRue felt the blood returning to his face, until eventually it was bright scarlet, and as hot as if he'd stood too close to his fire. Did that infernal woman mean to deprive him of all pleasure? For a moment he considered destroying the Van Gogh in the most insulting way possible, and he called for a maid, but by the time she arrived he'd calmed down enough to think of a less drastic solution. He wiped himself with a softened reproduction of an antique ten-thousand-dollar banknote, stood, and pulled his pants up. "'Send out invitations for a party, to everyone on the A and B lists, except the mayor,' he barked at his secretary. "'Certainly, sir. At the gallery?' "'No, here. I can't keep that bitch out of the gallery. Tomorrow night, make all the arrangements.' "'Your life support allocation?' "'Bugger the expense. Hell, double the amount of oxygen in the air. Give everybody a high.' I'll ask for donations if I need to. Catering? Finger food and an open bar, whatever it costs. Certainly, sir. Do you want any other details on the invitation? A reason for the event, perhaps? Make it a celebration of genius. Yes, sir. LaRue grinned and patted his sex doll on her perfectly sculpted bottom. He knew that when the Mona Lisa had been stolen, more people had visited the Louvre to stare at the blank wall than had seen the painting when it had hung there. He was going to go one better, hang the Van Gogh in one room, copies in all of the others, and let everyone try to guess whether any of them was the original. It would have people talking for years, decades, maybe the rest of his life. When midnight struck, LaRue was still standing in his great house, alone but for his robots, the rest of his art collection, the fountain of champagne flutes and the trays of dim sum, sushi, and canapes. He had gone from irritation to puzzlement, outright bewilderment, and most recently fury. He had snapped at his secretary for not including a request for RSVPs on the invitation. Not that they'd ever been necessary before. Then demanded that the invitations be resent, only to be told that none of them had been open. What? His fists clenched, and he found himself wishing that the computer had a neck. How many people are watching this party? None, sir. What? The hit counters indicate that no one has been watching. No one at all? No, sir. Not even that bitch the mayor? No, sir. His face gray. LaRue slumped into the nearest chair. 
he hadn't had any mail that day, which was unusual but not unprecedented, especially when he was expecting to meet people later that night. He took a deep breath and demanded the access figures for the past day. They told him that no one on the planet had looked at his collection. No one had done a search for his name. No one had even mentioned it in passing, not even once, and that was unprecedented. He looked at the previous day and was horrified to see a steady decline beginning shortly after eight, the time of Tao Sing's netcast. He felt the blood pulsing in his temples as he converted the figures into a graph. Seventeen hours after she'd delivered her message, it was as though his name had been erased from the public consciousness. No, he breathed. No, that's not possible. He glanced up at the ceiling. Is it? Sir? Shakily, he explained the situation to his secretary, who listened politely. It is theoretically possible, the A.I. replied, a few seconds after he'd finished. Considering the planetary population and the medical facilities available, everyone on the planet could undergo the treatment in the time you suggest. Whether that many of them would do so, I do not know enough about human behavior to judge. It strikes me as highly improbable, but it is possible. But the invitations! If they had done it early enough, sir, they would not remember you. They would never have heard of you, and would almost certainly dismiss the invitations as a hoax, if they remembered them long enough to do so. And they might have programmed their comms to filter out your name as well, and forgotten having done so. LaRue blinked. Send that bitch a message from me. Tell her she won't get away with this. He sat there and waited for a reply, and eventually fell asleep, still waiting. The chair reshaped itself into a bed, but even with its stochastic software, it was barely able to keep up with his twisting and turning. When LaRue woke the next morning, he felt worse than he had crawling out of cold sleep. He took one sip of flat champagne, stared at the finger food, and ordered his maids to take all of it to the recycling hopper. And while you're at it, he said, looking around, do the same to the Van Goghs. Except for the original, bring that to me. I want to recycle that one myself. No, bring me all of them. I want to watch them all go. He laughed as he fed the first painting into the hopper. If a painting is destroyed and nobody sees it, he cackled, can it really be said to have existed? He was still laughing as he recycled the twentieth copy wheezing as one of his feminoids handed him the fortieth. Only when he tried to lift the fiftieth, fifty-first, and fifty-second at once did he collapse onto the floor. Tao was woken shortly after sunrise by her cats, demanding food and attention. She sat up, ordered meals for them from the food facts, and rolled over, to see Aiden's holographic face hovering above her nightstand. Sorry for disturbing you at home, he said. But I've just had an urgent call from Mr. LaRue's secretary. He says that Mr. LaRue has had a seizure and is unconscious. He suspects that the cause may have been stress. Will you speak to him? Despite herself, Tao yawned, then nodded. Audio only, she said, as she slid out of bed and ordered a clean tunic and pants from the fax. Tao here, what sort of stress? He was negotiating with someone who is demanding a ransom for the return of Starry Night, said the secretary, when we were able to determine that the painting was indeed the original, and was undamaged. Mr. LaRue collapsed. How bad is it? The Robodocs say he should recover, though there may be some short-term memory loss. The painting is here. 
Do you wish to collect it? I'll send someone over, Tao promised. Let me know if there's anything my office can do to help. Thank you. The morning after the morning after the unveiling of Starry Night, Tao walked into the office wondering why A.I. still allowed humans to drink alcohol. She had vague memories of asking Aiden this once before, and of receiving a complicated explanation, which had something to do with robots having to work so hard to prevent humans harming each other that they were rarely able to prevent them harming themselves. Despite the feeling that she should still have a hangover, she made it to her private chambers unaided and began scrolling through the previous day's reports. Good party? asked Aiden. Excellent, she muttered. A pity LaRue couldn't be there in person. She hesitated, then said, The docs say that his version of events of the night before he had collapsed are quite different from those his secretary gave. He could be delirious, said Aiden, or delusional, a result of the seizure. But I'm not a medic. Tao knew that the comm had instant access to the full range of human medical knowledge but she didn't argue. They say he seems to have suffered from a paranoid delusion that everyone on the planet had him erased from their memories. That was the night after your netcast, Aiden reminded her. It could well have given him nightmares, which he might find difficult to distinguish from reality. I think it would have given me nightmares had I not been immune to them. If you had actually ordered it done, or even persuaded people to undergo the procedure voluntarily, Removing that much human memory of performing so much potentially risky nanosurgery. Obviously, we could not have refused to do it had it been requested, but the risks would have posed an ethical dilemma for the robotocs. Indeed, for the whole AI community, it would have been even worse than allowing the Van Gogh to be destroyed. It seemed far too drastic a measure for a relatively unimportant problem. But LaRue would have thought he was sufficiently important. That is consistent with my analysis, yes. Neither spoke for a moment. Then Tao said, Of course, if someone had made LaRue think people had forgotten him, by interfering with his net access and blocking his hit counters... No human would have that power, said the AI coolly. The system would have repaired itself as soon as such a fault was detected. And, of course, that sort of interference would also have been ethically questionable. But less so than mass memory erasure? Less drastic a solution? Hypothetically, it might be considered so. Or than destroying an original Van Gogh, even if ordered to do so. That would also pose an ethical dilemma, the AI admitted. Much the same dilemma we face when a human wishes to cause themselves serious harm. And interfering with someone's net access would have been much simpler, at least for the AI community. As simple as possible, but no more so. Efficient minimalist, even a beautiful solution, in fact. I wouldn't know, said Aiden. I have no aesthetic sense, remember? Tao nodded and walked over to the spigot. Only, what was it? A sense of symmetry and proportion? The holographic face smiled fleetingly. Just so, he said. The End Wow. How's that for an ego, huh? So on to our second story, which is called Nor Iron Bars a Cage by Deborah J. Ross. Deborah writes and edits fantasy and science fiction. Her short fiction has appeared in many different anthologies and magazines. She's the author of the Darkover novels, 
and is altogether a fascinating person and writer. I'll be chatting to Deborah after the story, so don't want to blather on too much right now. You can have a look at the Triple F website for more. The story is read for you today by yours truly. Nor Iron Bars a Cage by Deborah J. Ross Tax Collection Day dawned clear and bright over the walled city of Galenza. Farmers arrived even as the first light softened the ancient battlements. Wooden gates swung open to admit a procession of ox-carts, creaking under late summer's bounty, sacks of wheat and barley, tubs of pale gold butter, sheaves of clover-grass to keep cattle fat over the winter, bushels of carrots and cabbages, kegs of country ale. A market had set up in the shadow of the grey-walled affliction tower, where it was said kings had gone in and never seen the sun again, until their ghosts wandered the endless corridors, so confused they did not know they had died. Others said there were no ghosts, only the endless weary sighs of common criminals. Tax collection day it was today, and Elena bent over the slop pit behind her father's cloth shop, retching dryly. Nothing came up but acid. She knew better than to try even a mouthful of dry bread. Wiping her mouth on the back of one sleeve, she tucked the folds of her shawl into her wide belt, adjusted the money purse, and went back into the shop. The shop smelled of cedar incense, used to keep away moths. In the light from the mullioned front windows, bolts of blue and crimson cloth shone like jewels. As a child... She loved to bury her face in the fine wool, velvet, even brocade from far eastern lands. How safe she'd felt then, hidden. A movement from the front of the shop startled her alert. A familiar shape stepped away from the shadows and became distinct. Come on then, my darling. Her father's teeth glinted, although the light came from behind him. He held the book of records close to his belly and pulled the door open for her. Walking past him into the bright, dusty street, she drew in a quick breath. The heat of the morning struck her in the face. You are too warmly dressed, her father said, as if he had forced her to display his wares and thus increase their value. The tax collector and his scrawny assistant had, as usual, set up a table in the market square so that everyone could see that the king's law knew no favourites and all their neighbours paid their due. This early the line was short. Many were still abed or about their morning marketing. The plain wood table was covered only by a runner, bearing the tax collector's sigil, a double-headed axe. Here, Elena's father set his record book in a common clay token used by even those who could not read and write. The book with its tiny looped inscriptions was proof of his own stature, his learning. The tax collector, a squat, grizzled man in his age-stained tunic, glanced past the book as if it were no more than a speck of dust. He picked up the token, studied it with lower lip outthrust and eyes squinted. Hmm, Miles the Cloth Trader. Fourteen princes of silver. Exactly, Elena thought, the same as it had been for the past ten years, since her mother died and she had been the one to accompany him to the market square on tax days. Behind her, a piglet squealed in its cage. Someone hawked turnips in a loud, hoarse voice. 
the collector placed a ten-prince weight on the scales and then added four singles. The weights were soft lid, grimed from much handling, but not so much that the stamp of the king's own treasurer, the likeness of a prince long dead, could not be clearly seen. At her father's signal, Elena took out the coin purse, double-layered leather, carefully stitched in compartment, holding their hard-earned silver. Like traders' coins everywhere, some were small, some large, some round, some oval, even a few Marconi squares. One or two were not coins at all, but silver buttons, and the collector let those pass. Silver was silver. As she placed the silver pieces one by one on the balance pan, Elena rested her gaze on the weights, lowering her lids so that the image blurred. She felt the familiar, sickening sensation of moving closer and closer until she was inside the metal. She was the metal. Cold. Hard. Heavy. She moved among the tiny metal demons, felt them crowding in on her, throngs so many she could not count them, dancing to their silent music, whirling fast and faster. Dance with us, dance with us. Yes, she thought, and felt the cold metal bubble of their delight. Dance. Lighter. She nudged the deep. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Demons with that special sense, the one she must never let anyone know she had. Dancing faster now and lighter, as if she were the earth itself longing for heaven. Lighter. The pan bearing the weights lifted, swung up and down. The collector signalled her father to stop, plucked a small coin from the tray and handed it back, holding it between thumb and forefinger as if it might bite him. With his free hand, he waved them on. For an instant, Elena could not move. The feeling of oneness with the metal demons ripped from her, leaving her senses raw and reeling. She swayed on her feet. Dimly, she felt her father's hand, hard as the lead and as cold, close around her arm. 
the tax collector might have glanced her way as they hurried past, although she could not be sure. What's wrong with you? her father hissed, as soon as they were out of easy hearing. Do you want to get caught? Do you know what they will do if they find out about you? Hanging. Hair and nails pulled out by the roots, molten lead on her eyelids, skin flayed in strips and salt rubbed in. She could recite the words in her sleep her father had said them so often. Elena didn't bother with an answer. She knew better. She steadied, but the old familiar feeling had wrapped her stomach in its vice-like grip, as unrelenting as her father's grasp of her arm. Don't be sick again, she pleaded with herself. He let her rest for a while in the back of the shop. She drank the thin, sour beer because she knew she must. Weakness would not spare her, would only make things worse. Finally, warmth spread from her belly and loosened her muscles. She could breathe again. That afternoon, a lady in her retinue came in. Not a real lady, but a spice trader's wife, newly rich, but with ready money to spare and a taste for colourful gowns. The price of the fabrics would go far to replenish the coffers drained this morning. And yet Elena knew it would not be enough to please her father. For a while, Elena lost herself in the choosing of the cloth for the lady's undergarments, chemises of smooth, tightly woven linen to lie against tender skin. She brought out bands of colourful embroidery, stiff with patterning of grapevine and peacock feathers, and tattered lace brought by barge and caravan from the far mountain kingdoms. Time stood still as the beautiful edging strips and fine cloth moved through her hands. At last, the lady sighed with contentment, looked towards the bustling street, and turned to go. Her father bolted the door behind her, signalling that the day's business was done. You fool! You simpering, fainting fool! You could have given yourself away! And then where would I be without you? He rubbed his hands together, soft merchant's hands. Elena could not take her eyes off his hands. She wished she could cry, but found no tears waiting. Yet, his voice softened, crooning, you did well. I'll wager your curse saved us five solid princes. I might not have to beat you after all. <laughs> she kept her eyes lowered so he would not see the hope which always flared up when he said those words. Flared and died, this time like every other. Her vision went white and she sank to her knees, knowing there was no escape. Pounding woke her. Not the throbbing pain from her back and thighs, but waves of sound. She started to swing her legs over the side of her narrow trestle bed. A cry tightened around her throat. She quashed it, forced herself to move slowly. It was past dawn, so she must have slept, finally. She heard her father snoring from the other side of the thin wall that marked off her tiny room. I'm on my way, she called out. She'd slept in her clothes last night. Full skirt and long-sleeved blouse gathered high around the neck despite the day's heat. She knew from experience that was easier than having to put them on the next morning. Now she eased herself to sitting, shifted her weight forward and straightened up. The stairs were the hardest part. They always were. I'm coming, she yelled as the pounding redoubled. We know you're in there. Open for the king's men. She flung open the shop door and let her face twist into a scowl, part genuine pain at the day's brightness. Two guards stood there, alike in blue and silver tunics, nondescript breeches, scuffed boots. One had a sword scar across one cheek. My father's still abed. What do you want? 
You are Mistress Elena that stood with him at the tax collector yesterday? Yes, of course. Her impatience now gave way to dawning fear. Then it's you we want. They took her, manacled her wrists together as if she were a common thief, would not let her stop to put on her boots so that she only had time to slip her feet into the wooden sandals she saved for muddy days. Father! she called. But before he could shuffle downstairs, cursing, the king's men had dragged her through the door and onto the street. What's going on? Where are you taking me? She stumbled. The neighbours stared. I haven't done anything. Streets and facades blurred by. The faces of the curious, carts and strings of penance above, smells of fresh-baked bread and overripe fruit, wet wool hanging to dry, boiled cabbage. The guards half carried her the rest of the way to the king's voice, court of the western part of the city. She'd been to this building with its carved frontal once or twice before, always in her father's shadow. Spectators jammed the courtroom, eager for amusement. The two king's men pushed Elena forward. She looked around wildly, recognising no one. The clerk bent over his desk with a stack of curling foolscap paper to one side, his pen scratching furiously. The tax collector's assistant stood to the side, along with a priest barely old enough to grow a beard. The voice herself was an old woman with beetle-bright eyes and a mouth like a dried prune. She got up from her dark wood chair, carved all around with bound demons and the saints who had bound them, and peered into Elena's face. Please, Elena prayed, closing her eyes. Let me not go back. The voice made a humphing sound as she lowered herself back into her chair. Explain to me again how this child managed to cheat on her taxes. My father's taxes. Her mouth would not move. Her throat closed up. The tax collector's assistant said ponderously, as if that were the only speed he knew. The cloth merchant was to have paid fourteen princes in silver. After he and his daughter left, I reweighed their portion, and it came to only nine princes. She was the one who carried the purse and placed the silver on the scales. The voice peered at Elena with those two bright eyes for a moment before asking, Is this true? Come on, girl, speak up. Do you have anything to say for yourself before I sentence you? Words rushed to Elena's mind, excuses, pleas for mercy. Her father was poor, it had been a hard year. The prices of wool were so high, she hadn't meant to do wrong, she would never do it again. Let me not go back. They took her away with a word from the voice, and the pounding of the staff that sealed her fate to the king's word. To the tower of affliction they took her, in whose shadow she had lived her whole eighteen years. In whose shadow she thought, as the doors clanged shut and the other prisoners, a wave of stinking, starving womanflesh drew nigh to drown her, she would die. That night, Elena lay curled on the mat of straw in the farthest corner from the door, wishing she did not have to wake up ever again. Let her sleep, poor child, said the crone with more gaps than teeth, and a welter of festering sores across her chest and back, and gestured to herself. Soon enough she'll come to this. But it was not day, not yet. Around her, sleepers sniffed and whimpered, coughed and snored, shifted on their thin pallets. Elena pushed herself to sitting. Her wrists smarted where the manacles had torn her skin, 
and it would be several nights before she could lie on her back. She thought of praying that she might die here, this night and in this place, but her prayers, said by moonlight or not, had never been answered before. There was no reason to think they would be now. Without thinking, she let her senses wander until she touched the metal demons in the lock. It was iron, not lead, and she liked its subtle liveliness. With her mind, she followed the shape of the lock. How easy it would be to slide this piece here, to lift this other one. And where would she go, even as she passed this locked door and the next and the next, back to her father, to starve on the street? She stared at the beam of moonshine coming through the single narrow window. No light demon dancing here, but only a silent song, waves of movement and delight. Exhaustion weighed her eyelids, leaving them heavier than any tax collector's weights. The light grew, reached for her, luminous and piercing like an angel's song. She awoke again to the clamour of her cellmates rising, complaining to themselves and each other about the hardness of the floor, the body lice, things she didn't understand. Thirst rasped along her throat, but her legs and back were less sore than the day before. Somehow she found herself near the front of the throng, as the guard passed a basket of bread and a bucket through the door and locked it fast. Elena gathered up two chunks of bread, one in each hand, and then backed off as the other women pressed forward, scrabbling for their share. She looked around, wondering how she was to drink. Here you are, dearie. The crone appeared at her elbow, holding out a battered tin cup. Elena dropped one of the pieces of bread into the crone's hand and took the cup. That's the way, that's the way. Elena realised as she scooped up the brackish water that without the exchange, the crone might have gotten only the hard crusts at the bottom of the basket. With friends, one might survive a long time here. Elena turned to find a place to sit and eat. She bumped into an older woman, a good head taller than she, with heavy shoulders and cropped pale red hair jutting at all angles. The woman's face, and most particularly her nose, bore a ruddy tint. Give that here. I'm hungry. Elena handed over her chunk of bread without a blink. She had no appetite for the dry, musty stuff, but she hesitated to surrender the cup. She was so thirsty. The smell of the water rose and filled her head like perfume. She licked her lips, and then, without thinking, she lifted the cup and drank deeply. She heard gasps around her as she gulped. Someone jostled her, breaking her balance. She lowered the cup. Red hair glowered at her, and Elena realised how much bigger and more powerful the other woman was. Strangely, she didn't care. What could the woman do to her that had not already been done? Water had dribbled round the sides of the cup as Elena drank, wetting her chin. Now she wiped the back of her free hand across her face. What's wrong with you, girl? came a voice behind her. That's Mariam the sword. She'll beat the stuffing out of you. Mariam's eyes narrowed. Elena could well believe the old woman had been a pirate, a soldier, a berserker, but still there was no fear in her. It had all been used up. You want water? Here it is. She downed the rest of the cup over Mariam's head. A gasp rippled through the cell. Fight! someone shrieked. Call the guards! She'll kill the child! Mariam shook her head scattering droplets. 
Her pale red hair stood up in spikes like a dozen devil's horns. Do it, Elena silently urged her. End it. Somebody by the door was taking bets on how long the fight would last. A clatter down the corridor indicated the approach of the guards, and yet it seemed to Elena that the cell that all the world held its breath. Mariam leaned forward, scowling down at her. Elena could feel the heat from the other woman's body on her own face. Suddenly, Mariam threw her head back and laughed. Ho, 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 you're a fearless one, this. Still laughing, she turned away to her own pallet by the front wall. The others shrank back from her. She stretched out her legs and gestured at Elena. Come here, little dragon, and tell the sword how you came to be in this vile place and who it is that beat you so. Elena, who had no idea what to do now that she was going to live, crouched beside Mariam. How did you know? she said timidly. About the beating. One glance at Mariam's eyes told her. She knows what it feels like inside her own body. She knows how it is to wake the next morning to be afraid to move, even to breathe. She knows the footsteps that come in the night. The gates to a flood she did not know existed opened inside Elena. If she could have thrown herself into Mariam's arms and sobbed like a baby, she would have, but she sat back straight and eyes level, as if they were the only two in the world, and told her story from the beginning, all except for her witch sense and how her father forced her to use it. Her father's warning still echoed in her heart what became of witches. When she got to the morning and the tax collector, Mariam stopped her. In and out of these places I've been, more times than I can count, little dragon, and only one rule have I ever kept. Whatever brought you here, or me, or any of us, that we leave behind. Oh. Elena saw that it didn't matter to this squat, ugly woman what she had done, what demons she danced with or why, only who she was right now. In the nights that followed, as she lay on her pallet that was now next to Mariam's, Elena sometimes heard the swordswoman cry out in her sleep. A soft cry, not enough to waken anybody else, and yet it penetrated to the very marrow of Elena's bones where her deepest nightmares hid. At first, Elena covered her ears with her hands and shivered until she sank back into her own uneasy dreams. One night she could not shut out the sound and she could not bear to hear it. Demons, not of metal or of light, but of pain of wordless, endless pain called out to her. Their voices tore at her soul. Her vision went white, and she sank down among the demons, opening herself to their claws and fangs, knowing there was no escape. Numb endurance was the best she could hope for. Or was it? Little demons they might be, little motes of memory edged like the sharpest knife. But she had some power over demons— did she dare use it on another person and take the awful risk of being recognised and called out for a witch? And yet did she have a choice? Was it so wrong, so evil, to want to ease such terrible pain? She reached out for them with her unnameable sense, deep into the mind of her sleeping friend. They did not dance like earth, nor did they sing like light. They collided with each other, swirling, tumbling, shrieking in their own language. Elena now seemed to be floating in their midst, surrounded by the chaotic frenzy. They took no notice of her, and she realised that the moment she feared them, they would rise up to drown her. She nudged them as lightly as she dared. Dance? 
The agitation intensified, whirling, twisting even more frantically now. She could almost see waves, ripples of something which was neither demon nor space between them. She saw it, in a moment's clear vision, like, like a river in which they struggled, lashed out as if shadowboxing. Their passion whipped the waters into a foam, dark and poisonous. No, no dancing. Elena heard the whimpering again, somewhere beyond the raging, frothing seas of demons. She knew that sound, knew what it was like to long for sleep that never came, knew the pain that had no words. Gently, she reached out to the child beyond the demons, imagined pulling her into strong, safe arms. Rest now, my small one, my treasure. In her mind, she said the words she wished to hear a hundred times. She heard them in her mother's voice. Quietly, gently, rest. As she spoke, the waves seethed less powerfully, as if calming slightly under her words. Quietly now, gently now. She went on speaking in her mind, cradling the invisible child. Slowly, in groups and patches, the demons slowed their terrible whirling. The waters between them grew clear, waves becoming ripples, ripples becoming stillness. The voices of the demons faded, except where they blended into a rhythm which built and faded as smoothly as a song. Quietly now, gently now, rest now. She fell asleep, rocked in the comfort of her own words. Movement woke her shortly before dawn. The slit of a window through which she had seen the moonlight on her first night in Affliction Tower now admitted the creamy glow of dawn. She sat up, rubbing tear-grimed eyes. Around her, sleepers lay in dreamless sleep. Mariam stood, facing the window, one hand clenched tight in a fist, the other covering it. She turned, bowed slightly to Elena, and lowered her hands. Pale eyes bored into Elena so that she wanted to look away, hide, but... Something in that searching gaze held her fast. Then Mariam nodded, as if satisfied, and the moment faded. The guards came tramping down the corridor, four in formation and not one or two as usually came. In their footsteps, Elena heard their numbers and their fear. The other women felt it too, for they froze in their games of knucklebones and chance. Tin cups and dice disappeared, a few scuttled to the corners. Mariam who'd been standing in the exact centre of the cell on one foot while breathing noisily and waving her arms in a complicated pattern, came to attention and turned to face the bars. Oh, ho, ho, the crone cackled. There'll be a hanging sure enough this day. Quiet, old woman, Elena snapped, and received an injured glare in return. The guards arranged themselves two on either side of the barred door, the other two a pace behind them. They looked more frightened than grim to Elena, and it came to her, watching with curiosity as one guard took out a scroll and proceeded to read it, that these were no different from the two who had dragged her here. It was she who had changed. Mariam the Sword, accused mayhem and berserker, layman to the dread pirate Carib, late of the King's Fifth Company of Swords, graced with a ribbon of fortitude and since disgraced by crimes against God and His Majesty, stand forth. Mariam did not move. The guard looked up from his text and squinted in her direction. That is you, isn't it? All but the lemon part, she answered equably, 
That I never was. You're to come with us, he said, still reading. His comrade fumbled with the keys and finally got the door open. Elena stood and watched, open-mouthed, as Marion strode through without a backward glance. Behind her, one of the women muttered a prayer for the dying and the lost. Elena turned, eyes half-blind, to find the crone holding out her hands. Oh, dearie, don't weep for that one. It's a better world she's going to than she's ever known on this side. She's to be hanged. The only way out of here, some other woman said. Ten years and more I've been, and never saw no one walk to the gallows like that one. Ah, and a raw lump she was too, another replied. You could see the death in her eyes, that one, when she looked at you. She was kind enough to the child. After she near to eat now for breakfast. The voices went on, but the words brought Elena no more comfort than the bony arms around her shoulders. The prison cell, which had become a sanctuary, in an instant turned desolate. She cried herself to sleep that night, not caring who heard, her fellow prisoners or the guards or her father for all she cared that night and the next and the next. The demons whirled and the waters frothed, but they could not touch her. Never again would they touch her. I will die here, she thought numbly. I will die alone. They came for her a fortnight later. Down one corridor and then another, up a flight of stairs, a landing, then two, through more twists and turnings than a badly snarled loom, Elena followed the pair of guards. They'd manacled her the way she'd come here, and the chain jangled with her step. She wished she'd had the courage to witch the locks that first night in Affliction Tower, though that might have brought her a quicker death. She found herself wishing that Mariam had said goodbye, even a turning of the head a word or two. Elena had only a vague notion of where she was in the tower. By now she could not have retraced her steps for any amount of princely silver. She assumed they would take her to the battlements, where she had seen the bodies of traitors swaying in the wind. Yet, after ascending a flight of stone steps and then another, their path wound on the same level. Her eyes stung with the brightness of the day, crossing a courtyard where a pair of well-dressed ladies, probably noble prisoners, sat beneath a long dead tree bent over their needlework. Something within her stirred as the guards paused to unlock a barred gate and then a heavy wooden door. A public flogging before they hanged her? She shivered with outrage. For the first time she believed in her own innocence, knew in the very marrow of her bones that she had done nothing to deserve such a punishment. There was no flogging pole, no stocks, no barrel for dousing, no gallows. Elena saw only a few ordinary people looking curiously, not at her, but at the guards, and a knot of fighting men in swords and leather vests. Their loud, percussive voices rose above the noise of the street. The guards removed Elena's manacles. She wondered if she ought to be afraid. She could not understand what was happening. Was this some new form of torture? Her native wit urged silence. They retreated through the open door, leaving her alone. A heavy hand gripped one shoulder from behind. She closed her eyes, steeling herself for the worst. Little dragon! Strong arms enveloped her, almost lifting her from her feet. She smelled newly polished leather, soap, steel oil. Mariam set Elena down, grinning. Elena had mistaken her for one of the men with her pale red hair hidden beneath a helmet that flourished a wildly crimson plume. What are you 
doing here? Elena blurted out. You're dead. That brought a fresh round of laughter. It matters not what Mara's done. Merely opened up the bag of a windbag for the wind to come in. Compared to what we might refuse to do the next time his royal backside gets himself in a mess, one of the men said. Oh, now they're saying it was all a mistake, the second of the three men said. But what are two less mouths to feed, Mariam said, keeping one arm around Elena's shoulder. What think you of her, my mates? Little dragon indeed, to nay say you hung over, laughed the third. And you, Mariam turned to Elena. Will you take the freedom of the streets? Or go with us to far Kurdistan, where there is a king's son needs rescuing and many locks to be picked? Two thoughts warred for Elena's attention. The first that Mariam had somehow contrived to release that she was not to be executed after all, and the second, she knows. She knows and she doesn't care. Little dragon, Mariam said in a lowered voice, think you I would not know the touch of a healer's mind? I, who have seen fields run red with blood, and darker things done when there is no moon, think you I would not know the value of that gift, wedded to courage such as yours. For answer, Elena slipped her thin, small hand into Mariam's calloused one and followed her into the bright, unforeseen day. What a great story. Perhaps it is just a woman's prejudice, but I love a good, strong female lead. As I mentioned earlier, we had an interview with Deborah. I had an absolute ball talking to her. Thank you so much to her for taking time out of her schedule to chat. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. Deborah J. Ross, thank you very much for joining us today on Farfetched Fables. It's a pleasure. Uh, for those of you who don't know very much about Deborah, uh, she is a fantastic writer, a writer of both fantasy and science fiction, although under different names. Is that correct? Um, yes, mostly. Okay. Um, in general, uh, my novels right now, my science fiction novels are under Wheeler and my fantasy novels are under Ross. However, when we start talking about short fiction, um, the distinction breaks down. <laughs> As it normally does when it comes to short fiction. Right. The, um, I started writing as Deborah Wheeler back, I think my first sale was in 1982. And that was my legal name at the time. And I, I had no intention of changing it. Um, so it wasn't a pen name. But um, I was restored to my birth name, which is Ross. Um, after divorce, and so that is my legal name, and I try not to confuse people too much. It's always nice to have an alter ego, though. Yes, it is, and every once in a while, when I get a wild idea in some very, very different genre, I think, I really should use a pen name for this, a pseudonym, um, but so far that hasn't happened. Uh, <laughs> I love fantasy and science fiction, and, and I'm very happy to keep writing in this field. Where do your ideas come from? I'm talking about your ideas. Where do they come from? Oh, gosh. <laughs> a friend of mine who's quite a successful fantasy writer says that um, the idea fa fairy leaves little packets of ideas under her pillow every morning. 
And that's kind of a humorous way of saying that I get ideas all the time. Um, things, uh, images, situations, lines of dialogue, you know, just moving through my ordinary day, I'll, I'll notice this and I'll think, oh, that's cool. Um, that's not enough to make a story. You have to take stuff that's cool and shiny and, oh, this is so wonderful that really speaks to you and to create some tension. Um, if it's a short story, a single line of tension is quite sufficient. But if it's a novel, you need not only sturdier lines of tension, but you need several moving at cross purposes. So what will happen is I will um, either jot down or I will make a mental note of something that um, strikes me as being interesting. Um, and it'll sort of burble around in the back of my mind. And then um, either two or more cool things will collide and there will be sparks and I'll go, oh, that would be an interesting setup. Or I will be sitting down to uh, work with some of them and more consciously develop um, this is a character, this is his or her problem, a goal, this is the obstacle. Um, and then how, how many unexpected and bizarre things can I make happen along the way? <laughs> so, I mean, do you, do you work on one story at a time or do you have different projects going all the time? Most of the time I have several projects. I have the um, deadline of the moment, um, which could be, you know, crash and burn. I really have to get this finished. Or it could be uh, this novel is due in six months, so I need to work on it on a regular basis. Uh, most of the time I am multitasking, drafting, doing a rough draft, and revising or editing. And that allows me to take a break from each of those activities. Um, and, and they use my mind in different ways. So I think if I were trying to draft two stories at once, it would be, I'd be exhausted. But it's it's like um, um, alternating um, hiking and piano playing. It doesn't doesn't use the same part of your brain. While that's happening, in little bits of time, like in that liminal period uh, between waking and sleep, um, when I'm washing the dishes, when I'm walking the dog, that when I'm sitting at a stoplight, all of that. Um, things will be will be coming up in my mind, um, and that's sort of the that creative ferment that I was talking about, the fermentation process. So I'm not working on that project in terms of putting words down, but I'm working on it in terms of I'm letting my creative muse play in that area and see what she comes up with. Do, do you ever get, I hesitate to use the term writer's block, but do you ever get bored with a story? Oh, sure. Um, usually that means I'm blocked. Um, or, um, yeah, blocked in the sort of general sense. Um, I don't suffer from writer's block where I can't write at all. But when I am finding myself frustrated, um, I no longer care about these characters. You know, whatever bad thing happens to them, they deserve 
because they are so uninteresting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, then usually either I need to take a break and go off and do something else, which usually lasts about two hours, or um, I have made a misstep. I've, I've, I've gotten off the rails, as it were, in my storytelling and I need to go back to retrace my step. When was the last time this story was exciting to me? And then rip out everything since then and take it in another direction. Uh, one And I did that a lot as a younger writer. I do it less now. There's a related problem, which my friend um, Maya Catherine Bonhoff calls writer's gap. Okay. Which, which, is, which is not that... I can't possibly write another word or I will go crazy on the story or I will go crazy, but I don't know. I know where I'm going. It's a place I want to go, but I don't know how to get there. And just knowing that um, there's a leap in there someplace or a trudge in there someplace. Um, a lot of times what I will do is I will just say, and so two months later they arrived in, in Gondor and then take the story from there Sometimes I will come back and find exciting adventures from here to there. And sometimes it's just um, travelogue and I'm not interested in it. I know writers who uh, write on, work on many parts of the story at the same time. They're not linear. I'm linear. Mm. So I need to give myself permission to make those leaps also. Um, I don't have to describe every tree they pass on the trail or, heaven forbid, every time they stop for a bathroom break. Um, I, wanted, I want to describe and be in the scenes that contribute to the dramatic tension and to where the emotional juiciness is for me. Yeah, I'm sure that your readers would agree. If I don't want to write it, they sure don't want to read it. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Darkover. Um, you, you've, um, you have just signed up for two more Darkover novels. Um, three. Uh, oh, three. Okay. Right. We do them in triples. Okay. Um, and you have an anthology, Stars of Darkover uh, anthology, coming out uh, this weekend. Yes. Next yes. weekend. Um. Once upon a time, before people were as uh, paranoid about copyright protection as they are now, um, people wrote a lot of fan fiction about Darkover, and Marion was very encouraging. She had been part of the fan community, and she thought it was delightful that people wanted to write stories set on Darkover. Mm -hmm. And so there were a whole series, oh, I don't know, um, 12 or 14, I think, of anthologies of basically fan fiction, so much of it on professional quality level, uh, that were published by Daw and um, edited by Marion. And then the legal climate changed, and we couldn't do that anymore mm -hmm. uh, without agent, editor, publisher, and attorneys on all sides, you know, looking like they were going to have heart attacks. Yeah, and carrying so, large wads of paper. <laughs> right. But um, the trustee um, of the Marion Zimmer Bradley Literary Trust and their agent, who happens also to be my agent, 
um, and various other people figured out how we could do it, how we could do a Dark Over Anthology by invitation only. So Elizabeth Waters, who's um, a representative of the trust, and I sat down and we divided the editing for Stars of Dark Over. She did all the keeping track of contracts and bookkeeping and that sort of stuff that I'm no good at. And I contacted uh, many of my favorite writers um, who they may not have written stories for the old Dark Over anthologies, but they got their their inspiration or their start in professional writing from Marion. They either submitted a story to, she edited not just the Dark Over anthologies, but the Sword and Sorceress anthologies, yeah. and she had a fantasy magazine. So they may have submitted to her, and she wrote them back an encouraging letter, or they she bought their first stories, and they went on to wonderful careers. So um, I don't, reading slush is not my favorite thing to do, and it wasn't appropriate because of the copyright um, aspects of this. But what I got was just amazing, beautiful stories from many of my favorite writers, and I'm very proud of it. And we're going to do another one next year. Um, same thing, invitation only. Um, so that's that. That sounds um, really exciting. It is. It is. I've, I've been editing anthologies for a while now. I think this is my one, two, three, four, five, sixth or seventh. Um, and I like um, sitting on the other side of the desk. I would not want to do it full time, but... You know, I've had the privilege of working with some amazing, wonderful editors and looking at what they said that just turbocharged my writing um, and made me feel excited about the stories, even more excited about the stories I was telling. And, and I've worked with some editors that I didn't care for so much, and I've heard a lot of horror stories. So I thought, how, what kind of editor would I like to be? Um, and how would I like to treat the authors that are entrusting their stories to me? So it is a lot of fun. It um, really hones my critical eye, mm. which improves my writing. It teaches me to respect the voice of the other writer, um, which I think is uh, just a sort of a generally good life skill. And then I get these stories that I would never have thought of or thought to do that way, and I, and I get to read them, and, and I get to say, no, are you sure that's really the right word? Or think about this other aspect. Or um, one, <laughs> the one real change I insisted that an author make in it was, um, no, there is no river that flows through Thandara. Um, you can do another body of water, but you cannot do this, or you cannot see the sea from this place. Um, just a matter of geography. Um, and then, um, this is really interesting, but it it enriches my professional relationship with those authors. Um, oftentimes, we're friends. Not always. Sometimes I know them only uh, through the professional uh, writing world. Um, but um, because I have read their work really carefully... Um, when I when I edit, I try to see what it is that they're trying to do, and if there is any way I can make a suggestion to make the story more their vision, 
not mine. Um, I've been listening to their creative voices very carefully. And then when I meet them in person or we have an email, it's sort of, I, I feel like I, I've developed my listening skill with them. And I love that. All right. Well, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Um, you also uh, are bringing out a new novel on June the 4th. So the day after the anthology comes out, your new novel comes out. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can. Um, this is the third and final volume of an original epic fantasy series called The Seven Petaled Shield. Um, and uh, the volumes are The Seven Petaled Shield, Shanavar, which is the name of my uh, one of my heroes, a female hero, who is a, a warrior of a nomadic horse people very much like the Scythians or the Mongols. And then the third one, which is coming out, is called The Heir of Kored. Um, these stories got their, got their start, actually, in Sword and Sorceress. I was casting about for an idea for a story. So it needed a strong woman protagonist, and it needed to be in that genre. And I had just seen an exhibit of Scythian gold Objet d'art, gold ornaments um, at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. And I, they were reindeer and horses and all these wonderful animals executed with such artistry and love. And I had gotten the guidebook and I flipped open the guidebook and started reading about the Scythians and the Romans. And the Scythians, it turns out, kept the Roman Empire at bay for, I don't know, 200 years, something like that. Don't quote me on that. It's been a long time since I read it. Uh, but for some long period of time. And they used um, the swiftness and agility of their horses um, and their knowledge of the landscape gave them an overwhelming advantage against the um, very disciplined, methodical, regimental way of battling that the Romans had. So I thought, this is really interesting. I'll bet that um, in a fantasy world, these two peoples would have very different systems of magic. You would have something that's um, highly structured, probably hierarchical, um, pantheistic, um, sort of like engineering-based, um, scientific way of looking at the world, and then you would have something that grew organically from this vast steppe landscape with this huge sky, and you would have um, uh, a relationship to nature there. So, of course, the primary deity is the mother of horses because these people live by their horses. So I wrote a story, and the world was so interesting that I wrote another story, and four and all for Sword and Sorceress. And then some of the secondary um, areas and cultures that I would, they would just throw away lines, sort of raised their hands and said, you know, there's really cool stuff happening here. Come visit us. And I started um, constructing a novel. Remember, I talked about with a novel, you need more than one axis of tension. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, so one axis of tension was between the nomadic horse people and the Roman-like city dwellers. 
We're always trying to invade them. And then there's another axis between this ancient city-state, which has a long tradition of literacy and, and scripture. I was thinking kind of of ancient Judea, sort of, kind of. And then like the seal of Solomon, the tension is this very ancient force of chaos that, that they magically uh, bottled up that gets loose in the world. So I have two axes of tension and then I just throw them into collision, which is why it took me three books to write that story. And, uh, and I'm very proud of it and readers have been loving it. And one of the very lovely things is that um, Daw, my editor at Daw sort of held on to the first two until I turned in the third. And then we edited all three of them together. So the volumes have come out at six-month intervals. I think there's fewer things more frustrating for a loyal reader than to have to wait two or five years for the next book. And so I'm delighted that my readers get each episode in. I'm sure, I'm sure they're just as excited about it. Um, I know I am. I can't wait for my for my copy when it arrives. Um I'm going to let you go. Um, I just want to mention, I, I don't know if our listeners remember, you spoke about your uh, science fiction and fantasy, uh, the two genres. Deborah's book Collaborator, story Collaborator, is up for a Lambda Literary Award. It is indeed in the science fiction category. That's correct. And, uh, yeah, the, the ceremony is on June the 2nd. So we will be holding thumbs for you um, when Thank you, you. <laughs> <laughs> when when the story airs. Uh, we we still won't know whether you've got it or not, but we will be holding thumbs and uh, wishing you all the best of luck. Thank you so award. much. Um, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us this evening. It's been a delight, and um, all the best for your new books um, and your lambda. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Stay tuned. More exciting stuff will happen. I don't know what yet, but we will have a lot of fun with it. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much, Deborah. Good night, Nicola. Good night. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. So please, no changing or selling of the content. Listen, share, and enjoy. What more do you need? Have a good week wherever you are, and keep smiling. There are more stories out there to keep your ears busy. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.